This podcast is brought to you in part by Sing and Dog Double Read Supply. Sing and Dog Double Reads is an online double read shop and one of the largest suppliers of high quality and affordable professional and student reads for oboe and bassoon in the USA. Please visit www.singandog.com to see all of their products. That's S-I-N-G-I-N-D-O-G.com. This episode is sponsored in part by MKL Reads. MKL is the one-stop shop for handmade oboe reeds where you can try reeds from various makers and select the one that is best for you. Visit mklreads.com and enter coupon code DOUBLEREADDISH for free shipping on your first order. That's coupon code DOUBLE SPACE READ SPACE DISH, all caps, for free shipping on your first order. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. So we're here for episode 10, and for the first time in the history of Double Read Dish, Galit and I are recording in the same room. Oh my god, it's amazing. (laughs) But we are not alone, we are here with our uh, chamber group mate and friend, Corey Mackey. Say hi to the listeners, Corey. Hello, everyone. So we are together for a tour of uh, Kentucky, Tennessee, Missouri, yeah. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a whirlwind couple of days. We gave three concerts yesterday, which was a lot. Very long day. A lot of (laughs) concerts. (laughs) But it's been really fun and rejuvenating being back with Driftless Winds. How are you doing, Corey? I'm doing well. It was a it was a busy packed day. We have another set of recital and master class this afternoon, but it's been a it's been a good trip. Mm -hmm. Very good trip. So our group is kind of unique in that we all three live in different places, and you'll see like saxophone quartets do this a lot, right? Who meet in school, and then they'll kind of stay together and have uh, gigs that they do, but I feel like we see it a lot less in other like woodwind ensembles. You know, we see student groups a lot and faculty groups a lot, and we started out as a faculty group, uh, but then decided to stay together as we kind of pursued different things. What do you guys think is the... Um, hardest part or biggest benefit to being a group that you know has to make it a point to rehearse and play together well I like that when we are together we're really really efficient and we get a lot done you know giving three concerts in one day is not normally something that you would do if we got to rehearse regularly every week Um, we get to prioritize our practicing and our um goals and we can be a lot more focused about what we're actually trying to achieve so I really like that yeah my uh my favorite and least favorite thing are actually the same is you know when you have an ensemble that you're in the same city with you perform every day and you really get a chance to know those people and the music and that's my favorite part about constant rehearsals the thing that I is hard about Driftless is we don't have that, but over the summer we get together for a whole week and we learn the season's rep, which is nice because we really learn the repertoire in that week. Mm-hmm. And um, and then when we go and we do these tours, um, we're able to play at a very high level because of that you know intense rehearsal. We'll always you know schedule some extra rehearsals prior to the tour, but um, 
it's a lot of fun because then it opens up time throughout the semester because we all have other projects that we're working on as well. Mm -hmm. So it's nice to um, <clears throat> be diverse in the things that are interested in you and then, you know, leave where you have been for the whole semester and play really high-quality music with uh, great people. Well, and it's really interesting, and I've wondered if this because we did spend an hour, uh, an hour, a year <laughs> as a group together before we went our separate ways, but coming back together, it feels like riding a bike again. Yeah. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's really easy to um, familiarize myself with how we collaborate and play together, mm -hmm. and um, it's really easy to reacclimate. So what are some of our favorite memories as a group of things that we've done? What do you guys think? The thing that sticks out to me the most is our car trips because we've taken so many car trips. <laughs> That's and, right. Yeah. <laughs> it's so fun. It's just like let loose time and it always feels like a party. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Cor? Oh, man. Um, uh, the car trips are, are entertaining. Um, <laughs> the, the tours, we would do these tours where we'd have to get up so early because some of us had to teach an early class and we would... And we would get in the car and we would drive however many hours to do a whole day of recitals and master classes to get back super, super late. Mm -hmm. And it, it made for really long days, but I always, I always really enjoyed, um, I always really enjoyed going out and doing all those like full day run out concerts. One fun memory I have of the three of us is the Avalok Chamber Music mm -hmm. Residency that we did in New Hampshire. Um, so it was this. We stayed there for one week, mm -hmm. um, kind of chamber retreat where this program puts you up in lodging, feeds you, and just says, really good food. yeah, rehearse and be artistic. And it was kind of this really nice retreat to just spend time in the music and... Yeah, nothing is scheduled. So you, you have a project that you go there to work on, and then you just work on it. And there's no... I mean... No one's telling you you have to be certain places at different times. You just work on your stuff, and you get to meet other groups and listen to their projects that they're working on. And we met some amazing groups when we were there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think another one that I'm kind of proud of, because Avalok was the last thing that we did um, when we all were based in Wisconsin, mm -hmm. and we knew we were going our separate ways. Mm -hmm. And we said, oh, we want to stay together as a group. And I remember being kind of skeptical like oh we say that because we really enjoy playing with each other and whatnot but once we all three get into living very separate individual lives it may feel like an you know very huge task and possibly even a burden for financially and logistically us getting <clears throat> together and pursuing things and um so we said let's give it a semester of pursuing our own individual thing and then see if we still want to be a group and we did, and we proposed to play at IDRS and CMS, and both of those proposals were accepted. And that's kind of the moment we were like, yeah, we're going to make this work, and we're still going to do this. Yeah. And so uh, I think especially that IDRS concert last semester was oh, cool. Yeah, that was, really that was cool. a lot of fun. Because we were like, yeah, we're, we're still together, and yeah. we made long-distance work. <laughs> <laughs> and I also loved when we came to your school, Jackie, to do like a week... Was it a week of eight-hour rehearsal days? Was it like? It was long. Yeah. And Missouri was like a hundred and five so degrees. <laughs> and that was rough. That was rough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even the air conditioning in the buildings couldn't keep up with the temperature, so mm -hmm. the rooms were hot. And but like 
that concentrated rehearsal time was so good. I remember just feeling really solid. And that was the time we worked on the new commissions that we did mm-hmm. for IDRS and for CMS. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite memories that, uh, that I had is uh, working on, uh, in this case, Chai Yu Hu's piece, which, uh, which is called Voyage, and it's multiple movements of uh, pieces that she, she traveled over the summer. And one of the movements ends with a very fast and flourishy clarinet solo, and I was really worried to play it for the composer because it's written next to impossible <laughs> to, to play. <laughs> and I added a handful of slurs and accents that I think is what she was going for. So I was really nervous, and she came, and she was so delighted with our performance. It was nice because there's so many artistic ideas that we could have for that piece and she was very pleased with all the decisions that we made so that was that was really nice she was very pleased so we want to keep the read trio theme going for our shout outs this week so we are each going to shout out our favorite piece for the Reed Trio repertoire <laughs> this time. So I want to go first, just in case either of you were going to take mine. Oh, oh. Jackie! <laughs> and my favorite piece for this instrumentation is the Schulhof Divertissement. Um, and so we played that piece. That was one of the first pieces that we played mm-hmm. together. Um, yes, I remember because it was my first time playing it, and it was not both of your first time playing it. <laughs> And I was freaking out for like three months. <laughs> but yeah, I like it. How many movements is it? Like seven or Something eight? Like that, yeah. It's multi-movement. It's like 20 minutes long, so it's really substantial. It's sophisticated. Um, and it has enough modernism to have that more sophisticated um, tonal palette and whatnot, but it's still really accessible mm-hmm. and makes use of a lot of those dance movements and whatnot. Um, so that was one of my favorite things to play, really highly active, and, you know, the bassoon's not solely this bass, boring, you know, relegated mm-hmm. role to the tonic sustain, <laughs> <laughs> unlike some of the pieces we play. So I really like that piece. I love presenting it for audiences. Um, Jackie's going to kill me for saying it, but I think my favorite is the Francais. Oh. <laughs> These are both my two favorite pieces. I hate that piece. It's so hard. <laughs> I love Francais, though. It's just, it's adorable from top to bottom. It really is. It's just it's cute music. Cute and hard. What more could you want? Um, cute and easy. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I want. I find, it, I find it to be a really rewarding piece, though. It's a really, it's a good piece. A good I like piece. the Francais. It is really hard, though. It is really hard. My practice time was split between (laughs) time on the bassoon and time in prayer. (laughs) (laughs) What about you, Corey? We took your two answers. No, man. I was was like, I'm going to pick the Schulhoff or the Francais. And they were both taken. Um, Well, one piece that that this ensemble always ends ends with is a piece called Crankshaft by Robbie McCarthy. And I guess I would pick that one because... In a reed trio, the clarinet very often gets the inner voice a lot of times. You know, bassoon gets the bass, uh, oboe gets the melody, and I always get a lot of inner voices. And in Crankshaft, it was written for Bob Spring at ASU. And so the end, there's a lot of really fun and exciting clarinet parts and a lot of references to Copeland. We get the Copeland clarinet concerto gliss at the end. 
Um, oh, sorry, I'm talking to a bunch of double read players. I shouldn't talk about yeah, clarinet rep. No, oh, you're already bored. No, no single reads. <laughs> know your audience. Uh, but yeah, it's a fun piece. Everyone, everyone always likes it. You know, we've we've played it, and the other read trios are in the audience, and afterwards they're like, oh, "We're gonna buy that piece, and we're gonna play that piece." Mm-hmm. So I know that because of our performances, we've got a lot of other people to play it. And it's a fun piece. It's a good. It's a good way to end a concert. Right out of the box, gender reed knives are the sharpest reed knives on the market. Each original gender reed knife is handcrafted using traditional Asian knife-making techniques. Japanese steel is first forged into shape, hollow ground, and then hardened to Rockwell 5860, making the edge on the blade very strong yet durable. Each blade is then polished and hand-sharpened to perfection using shaped-in professional sharpening stones up to 8,000 grit. Genda even personalizes your reed knife before sending it. You can choose a right-handed, left-handed, or straight burr from their drop-down menu and easy-to-use website. Genda has also announced new products for April of 2017, including the Genda Reed Tool Roll, a high-quality leather tool storage roll, including three large and three small sleeves, and one covered pouch to store your reed-making knives and tools. They also offer Genda Leather Reed Knife Sheaths and a Genda Cutting Block. Visit GendaIndustries.com today. This episode is brought to you in part by JDW Sheet Music. JDW Sheet Music is an online store that specializes in original chamber music pieces for wind instruments. The website offers a variety of music transcriptions of composers like Debussy, Bach, Piazzolla, and Rachmaninoff. Owner and arranger Jessica Wilkins has produced over 60 chamber music arrangements featuring oboe and bassoon. Jessica's works have been performed at colleges across the country, as well as the 2015 IDRS conference in Tokyo, Japan. For access to the entire JDW Sheet Music catalog, please visit jdwsheetmusic.com. Welcome the amazing Alex Klein to Double Read Dish. We're so excited to have you on. Could we have you start by introducing yourself to our listeners and talking to us a bit about your training, your educational journey, your career, and how you got to where you are today? Well, hi, everybody. It's a pleasure. Good to talk to both of you online like this. This is lovely. Uh, So my name is Alex Klein, actually Alexandre Klein, I just gave up uh, having people call me Alexandri when I first came to study at Oberlin. So, and that's where Alex started, and uh, it's, it's kind of been around ever since. I did study at Oberlin College. I spent uh, a year at Curtis and realized that Oberlin had the sort of musician thinking that I was looking for. So I went back there and got an artist diploma with James Caldwell both times. And um, other than that, I started music in my native Brazil when I was nine years old. I was about to be expelled from school at third grade, uh, but then when my parents promised that they were going to give the kid a Nobel or something, uh, I did better in school. So thank you, Obo, for getting me through everything. And uh, that's about it. And now I play in the Chicago Symphony. (laughs) For the second time. (laughs) I've <laughs> only in two professional orchestras my whole life, and both of them have the same name. 
<laughs> when did you decide to make music your career? Was it something that you always knew you were going to do, or did you have an aha moment where you thought, no, this is what I'm going to do? I was 11 years old when I decided that. An 11-year-old kid decided what I was going to do for my life. Think of that. And I, I was nine when I started. I was eight when I realized school was just not working out. Uh, so by nine, I started oboe. By 11, I realized that this is way too good. I, I could not put it down, and it transformed me. It made me into a more disciplined, more organized person. And um, so, 11 years old. And um, did you have a special teacher or mentor who encouraged you to make music your profession? No, I did not. It was not necessary. Uh, my first teacher, João Ramalho, was a self-taught oboist in town, and he he couldn't give me uh, no the usual lessons because nobody taught him. He he learned by himself. So I, I didn't hear about French school, German school, Tabito school until until much later, and his lessons were more about experimentation. Uh, loving, loving the different sounds we can make. It was more scientific uh, than actual dogmatic. And it's something I treasure to this day, how a piece of music is something we explore because of the emotional content it brings, not just because we're supposed to play it right or not wrong. So how did you find your way to Oberlin from Brazil? When I was a teenager, I went to a music festival in Brazil where Bill Bennett uh, from San Francisco Symphony was the uh, oboe teacher. And I was looking at options for, for college and essentially just to get out of Brazil and, and look for a decent place to study. And he recommended several people. And I applied to about five schools Oberlin gave me the best scholarship, and I went there. I did not know anything about James Caldwell, but I desperately needed to get out hmm. and go somewhere. And, and I figure once I get to Oberlin, uh, other doors will eventually open. Little did I know that uh, studying with Caldwell would be central to my entire life. Can you talk a little bit about James Caldwell's teaching? Because I know he had a very unique teaching style, and you know his students have gone on to have brilliant careers. And I'm curious about you know what he would focus on in lessons and um, his general uh, philosophy. Well, you'll probably get different answers from every student of his, because he also did not teach based on dogma. Like, you have to do this. This is the way things are done. He led us to the conclusions that this is the best way to do things. And he was very patient and, and taught us how to think. He taught me how to think about problems and find solutions that, that were complete. 
even if these solutions at the time were not the final uh, conclusion he would have me you know, come to. So he was very patient in that way in allowing me to, to go in the wrong direction for a little bit just so I would experiment to see how it is and then we would talk about it. I remember, for example, learning the Strauss Concerto. It took me three lessons to get out of the first page just to get the concept about what those 16th notes are supposed to do. Uh, I said, no, that's not it. No, that's not, no, not yet. Now let's try this again. I could think it like that. And it, as you know, that is the piece that eventually gave me a Grammy Award. And it's, it's been the, the piece I played more times uh, than any other in my career. So I'm, I'm very thankful for him for, for teaching me that. I needed that. I needed that kind of uh, mental organization. But yes, he's, um, he studied with John DeLancey at Curtis. Oboistically speaking, he followed precisely the Philadelphia School, and that's how I learned to make reads. He was my, my first re real read teacher uh, who sat with me and said, now let's go step by step. This is what you do. And by that time I was 19, so I had that 10 years before that I was you know, wondering what reads were ever going to deliver to me. So we did a call on all of our Double Read Dish uh, social media for people to ask you questions. And we had a listener ask um, for you to give advice on auditioning in general. My, my advice would be to, be to have a strategy, not just practicing make good reads, which is a given, but to think of everything that's involved in that position. How will people hear you and see you uh, from the point of view of the conductor and the audition committee? And we are flexible as oboe players. We should be. We should have a variety of articulations, sound sizes, uh, speeds of vibrato available to us as we interpret music from Bach to modern. So it should be not very difficult for us to also adjust a little bit of our priorities as we audition from one orchestra to another, trying to understand what they're looking for. Sometimes it occurs that all players overstay their welcome in an orchestra, and the orchestra doesn't like them anymore. It kind of can hardly wait for them to retire. In that case, you probably don't want to present yourself phrasing the same way as or playing in any way so that reminds them of that person that they don't like. But in other cases, uh, the, the orchestra loved their previous oboist, and of course, you want to. Now, remind them that um, you, you also have some of that uh, oboistic input. So, and you do that as you prepare for, for your audition. I know this may sound crude and uh, a little bit too offensive to some, but let me remind you, too, that auditions are about votes. They're not about the best person. They're about the best person according to that day and that vote. You want people to vote for you. Your uh, audition is something like a political platform that you present to them, and you're going, you're going to hope that they would approve that, your package of 
goodies, that you have sound, interpretation, articulation, whatever, and vote for you. So you think about that. Who is, who is listening? Uh, is the concertmaster there? Is the principal flute most often is at the principal oboe audition. How do they see oboe playing? What kind of things they like to hear from oboes? Make sure you have those really clear to them. I love that because you have to listen outside of yourself. You know, listen to yourself as a non-oboist. So do you have any strategies that you use to combat performance anxiety or is that something that you struggle with or have? I have in the past, of course. I remember going to the bathroom several times during the day before a tough performance and, and so on. Um, eventually, what helped me were two things. I need to follow my fear, uh, understand what is it exactly that I'm afraid of. What is the worst that can happen? Um, and what, what will be the consequences of that? And then follow, you're afraid of what? That one piece? What about it? Oh, maybe that one phrase or maybe that one group. We go and practice and practice and practice that until it becomes second nature. And then what else are we nervous about? Oh, the read. Okay, so let's make sure we cover what exactly could happen with the read. And we get a plan to be prepared. So nerves, uh, instead of being against us, it should be our friend. Nerves are telling us where do we need to focus our practicing. Mm. And often it is on something we don't expect. We thought that, oh, that's easy enough. I don't need to worry about that. Well, yes, do, because sometimes we make silly mistakes. Um, <clears throat> so I would, um, the other thing I would um, um, add is that at some point it has to dawn on us that we are unable to play perfectly the way we would like to. Anytime. We can't. We are, we'll always dream up much more beautiful things than we're able to do. And this is good because it keeps us thinking forward. It keeps us hoping for better. It keeps us improving. But you also have to admit then that who are you to, um, consider playing perfectly? Now, that would be a very arrogant thing to do. So accept that we are fallible. Accept that bad things happen. And I usually have a little uh, exercise that I do before I go on stage to play a big thing, say a recital or a solo concerto, or an audition for that matter. I, I tell myself, okay, according to how much I practice and how, my, how well this read plays, uh, what can I expect, really? Well, maybe uh, five, six things. Little slur is not going to be there, or a little blurb here and there. Maybe one or two bigger things. If I accept my fallibility, uh, I will walk on stage and not feel afraid of it. If it happens, it's okay. I knew it could happen. Keep playing. Keep concentrating. Mm -hmm. The worst enemy is when we walk on stage thinking that this is our day. We're going to play perfectly because this is my recital. My mom is in the front row. It's going to be great. And then we make a small mistake. Our self-esteem drops to the bottom. We, and then we start making tons of others mm -hmm. because it's no longer going to be that super day, right? So accept that 
bad things happen, and it's okay. You know, it, it, the sun's going to rise tomorrow. You had a, you have, excuse me, a brilliant career with the Chicago Symphony, which you had to take a number of years off because of um, focal dystonia, which you have been super open about in other interviews, and uh, there's an article in the Double Read, as well as this really wonderful article in the Chicago Tribune that came out recently. Um, so I don't want to ask you too much about that, but... We had a listener question. Um, this question is from Noah, and um, it's a little bit long, but it's worth it. He asks, uh, I was born with nerve palsy, drop in my left wrist, and in eighth grade had surgery to correct this. The surgery granted me use of my left wrist and fingers and allowed me to begin playing the oboe. While the use of my left hand is almost normal, the way in which the tendons were arranged makes some fingers weaker than others and sometimes stiff, which can make my hand position look a little abnormal at times and cause some technical issues in the high register. Nobody would really notice this hearing me perform, but nonetheless is an obstacle that I must work extra hard at when I practice. What advice do you have for oboists like me with these sort of finger issues and the extra work we must do to overcome? This could relate to how you physically play and practice the oboe now and how that has changed from before the dystonia and what you do to work around these changes. My advice is tough love and tough it up. And you're hardly the only one with a problem. And, uh, and that is the thinking that I put in my mind. I'm not special because I have focal dystonia. I'm not special because I had to reinvent or relearn how to play the oboe. There are people with far worse problems uh, to deal with. I have a colleague in the orchestra who's going blind and uh, uh, blows up the music in a huge computer on stage so she can see three lines at a time. Uh, there, and then there's discrimination. You know, we can start talking about African Americans, women, gays, uh, in situations of of getting jobs and remembering that Lila Storch had to dress like a man to win the audition Houston Symphony. And we start to see that there are a lot more bigger problems out there than ours because at the end of the day we can play. We can play. It may be we have to take some detours. We can't follow the same practicing scheme as other people do. But count yourself as privileged because you can play and opportunities can open up for you. My advice to you is to do everything possible so nobody will ever hear or know that you have something. I talk openly about focal dystonia as sort of a, a, um, a dare for the listener to accept me as an oboist, not as a handicapped oboist. And I invite you to do the same. Do what you got to do. Your brain is going to tell you what you got to do to get the job done. And you may have to reinvent the oboe like I did. I have to put some coins and bridges in to make it work. You may have to reinvent your hand position. You may have to come up with a, a totally new technical approach to the instrument. That will be great. The only thing that matters about oboe playing is what's coming out of the bell. And make sure that is what you want to hear. 
everything else you do, what read you make, what what fingers you use, that doesn't really matter. Hey, man, I slide. You know, a lot of people like left side stuff. My left side is weird, so I slide all the time from D to F, from D sharp, the D flat to 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 E flat. I slide. If these are things I had to learn how to do. Tonight I'm playing the unfinished symphony. When I go to E flat to D flat, I am sliding down. You know, and that's complicated for most people. But for some of us, that is a reality of life, and so be it. Okay, so have faith and don't let this drag you down. I loved your response and your attitude in overcoming this challenge. I wonder, just speaking honestly, I think that most people, upon getting the news that they have focal dystonia, if I think about myself, it would be a period of mourning. And then I hate to say, but I'm honest enough to admit that I would probably accept it as an inevitability and would move on and find something else to do. So I wonder what part of yourself you tapped into to say, no, I will play the oboe and no, this is something that I'm going to find a way to do because I have to. Was that a road that was hard-earned, or was that something inherent to you? How did you mentally get to a place where you had to continue pursuing playing the oboe? You see, my life ended when I got focal dystonia. It ended. Um, Everything I had worked for, everything I had hoped, everything I had ever thought about circled around music making and playing the oboe. Uh, even more than I would ever admit then. But I had no hope of continuing. And um, focal dystonia is brutal because there are very few answers. There's not enough research that can go and say, well, now you ate this or that, or you smoked too much. And, then you know, there's, there's none of... Not that I did. I don't smoke, ever did, but... Uh, the point is, uh, we are left with a lot of unanswered questions, and some of them are uh, veered towards our- ourselves. I mean, what did I do? What could I have done? And so, um, what did I do to continue playing? I didn't. I stopped. There was one year when I opened my oboe case twice, a whole year, in January and in June. Uh, and that was my worst year of my life. But I, I, no, I started practicing by the week and I have tendonitis. What's the point? Uh, what is the point of me accepting an engagement for next year to play with some orchestra if I can't prove to myself that I can't do it? There is a part of us that is foolishly hopeful. Um, hope itself is something hard to define. Uh, but it involves a little bit of foolishness. It involves telling ourselves to believe that something is going to happen that we have no possible way of proving or concretely that it will happen. And I, that's how I got through it. Um, yes, I did accept that engagement for next year, hoping that it's going to be okay, and usually it did. I think all of them did. I, I managed to to get my playing back up again. I stopped certain things. I stopped learning new music. 
uh, start playing recitals or anything very long. Um, and, you know, the audition came here in Chicago. Am I going to say no? Of course I'm going to take the audition. You know, it's foolish for me to think otherwise, but it's also foolish for me to, 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 to look in the mirror and say, yeah, you're going to go there, you're going to apply. And there hasn't been, there hasn't been a day this season that I didn't play under pain, but I'm going to do this. It's foolish to do it, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm hoping that eventually things are going to settle and I'm going to find a way, but the fight continues. So as you said in your um, previous answer, you are an oboist first. You're not an oboist with focal dystonia. You're an oboist. And uh, listener Caitlin has a question. Um, as a leader in both the Chicago Symphony and your field as an oboist, what are some important characteristics and responsibilities of leadership? Um, humility. The more we learn, the more we know that there's so much more to learn. And also, we need to have the responsibility to defend principles which are bona fide, which, which are other people be able, are able to understand, even if they don't agree with, but they, they can understand why we do things this way. Uh, being in a visible position uh, makes me worry that I may do something in a way that gets people confused or worse, get them in trouble. Say, if I decide to play a very uh, unusual phrasing uh, that somebody can then hear, well, if Alex does that in Chicago, I'm going to do that too. And they get in trouble for that. So I'm very careful uh, where I play in Chicago, I, of course, I'm only one person in a hundred on stage, but I'm one person that has the melody enough times that I can make a statement with it. I'm very careful that I carry the banner of everybody on stage. Now, if I'm a soloist or if I am playing a recital, I am given more leeway to do things differently. But the visibility uh, of leadership uh, brings the responsibility that we have to do something that will contribute to um, um, to our work, to our hobo market. You've had an illustrious playing career, and one of my favorite questions to ask our listeners is to look back over the course of that career and talk to us about a favorite memory that you have of a past performance. Oof, how long is this interview again? <laughs> there are so many. My life is being built on those memories. Um, but I don't, I don't, I'm not going to lie to you. It's, it's not only the performances with big people that, um, that uh, haunt me, but the, the performances with people that that really touched my heart. Yes, I performed the, the Bach double with uh, Isaac Perlman and with Pinka Zuckerman and Sergio Luca and, and a number of wonderful 
wonderful uh, uh, violinists. Uh, I now share the stage with Bud Herseth on trumpet and Dale Clevenger and Larry Combs and uh, and I'm privileged to sit where Ray Steele once sat who was a principal in our orchestra for one third of its existence and uh, all of that is, is memorable for me playing uh, the Brahms Requiem with Barenboim was was lyric and uh, now, a life-changing event. The same thing was playing the, the Bach Passions with Peter Schreier conducting the, the, the great tenor. And, um, but there are events just as, as strong for me from my youth days, from my youth symphony, when um, a traveling group of friends came around. I was only 15, and they were doing... The opera died in Aeneas, and they sang with us, sang with our chamber orchestra, and I got to know people who were traveling through young people and and doing music. It was so beautiful. Um, listening to to words that James Caldwell taught me, and uh, and and his philosophical leadership, uh, these these words still ring in my mind. So. Um, I am very thankful. I feel very privileged of everything that happened in my career. Um, I I can only pay forward. I owe so much to so many people. I'm only hoping that I can pay forward as much as I can as an expression of how thankful I am for everything they did for me. Can you describe your approach to um, reed making and I understand this probably has changed over time but that would be interesting to hear about too well it changed since last week (laughs) 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 Um, my main um, uh, reed making style is the the American tabuto style the long scrape my reeds probably, the scraping doesn't look much uh, different than the, the usual long strip with an old tip, heart and back, and then length. I, However, I use a wider shape because I am, since it, my first 10 years of playing the oboe, I studied in European style. Only a year before I came to Oberlin, I started experimenting with the long scrape. So uh, to to um, mend the two ideas, I prefer the comfort of a wider shape when it comes to to sound creation. It has its drawbacks, particularly pitch going down. So I had to reorganize my scraping so that the pitch stays now stronger and higher, such as um, a stronger heart and. Thinner tip, shorter tip, things like that. But that's all part of the, the the options we had. I prefer to think of reeds as not not as a musical thing, but as engineering and mechanics, and maybe a little bit of um, physics. So the there are several variables that we are working with, and they can produce different results. 
we study what each variable is going to do. So what happens if your staple is to open or if your staple is to close? What happens if you gouge at this or at that? What happens if you use this or that shaper tip? What happens when your read is to open? Why is it that it gets open and what can we do about it? And, and so on. And studying it scientifically using the scientific method where we see a problem, we study the problem, and then we devise a test to see if we can get rid of the problem. And in the end, we analyze the results of the test and, and learn something from it. Uh, I do not believe uh, two people should have the same reads or even the same sound. I, I love the fact that uh, on Caldwell's asymptotes case also, the students all had different uh, sounds, different read styles, different approaches to oboe playing. Uh, and I, I, I find that healthy. I find that more human. I love that. I love that experimental approach because it takes a lot of the frustration out if you can look at it objectively instead of looking at it as an emotional burden. Correct. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of your favorite pieces in the repertoire to play? So that can be solo, chamber, or orchestral. What are the things that you look forward to performing? I think I'm going to disappoint you there. I never do, I never choose that. I never choose favorite composers, favorite pieces, because I don't want the, the ones that are not on that list to feel less privileged. My favorite piece is the one I'm playing right now. So today, my favorite pieces are Das Lied from Mahler and Unfinished Symphony because that's what we're playing tonight. Um, having said that, I am just as in love with the main uh, um, uh menu of, of over record whereas anybody else. So we've got some good pieces out there. They're very expressive and, and, and there are a lot of opportunities. But the oboe repertoire is also flawed, incomplete, in the sense that we're missing. We have some holes. We don't have Renaissance music. We don't have a whole lot of 19th century solo pieces and recital pieces. And we seem to have a boatload of Baroque so much that we can't get we can't play everything. There's too much of it. And we also have too much in the 20th century. Um, 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 and it seems like every now and then we discover new pieces written in the 20th century that are fantastic. And I had never heard about it. So it's frustrating sometimes dealing with the oboe repertoire. And I appeal to arrangements often in order to supplement what's missing. Uh, such as 19th century stuff, and, um, um, and anyway. Uh, but I, I, my, my answer to you really is that my, my favorite piece is the one I'm playing right now. I'm not going to elevate or downgrade any of them uh, beyond that. Where or to whom do you look for inspiration? Good question. Um, okay, I'm going to have to open that door. So let, there we go. I, 
I'm fascinated with humanity, about what it means to be human, what it means to be alive. I'm fascinated about our evolution, our journey, our varying cultures and languages and ways of thinking and solving problems. Uh, when I look at music, I see music as a constant companion on this journey. I think the fine arts have been with us all through uh, the evolution of our species. And, and as such, they, they represent something that um, perhaps we can't explain in words, but it represents our our emotions, our fears, our our challenges through the ages. Can I get my inspiration there? That everything that I'm playing is is an expression of what it is to be human. What would you say to a younger version of yourself? <laughs> These are tough questions. <laughs> 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 this one, unfortunately, I have thought about before. And unfortunately, you know, the first thing that came to my mind is, don't do anything stupid. <laughs> <laughs> but then I remember that it is from our stupid things that we grow. And only because we grow that good things happen. So I unfortunately have to conclude that I will tell my younger self, to just carry on. And I would live through the same mistakes again, because I have to. This is what uh, made me uh, happy today. This is what made me feel complete today. I couldn't tell myself to make more reads or practice more. I would just say, carry on, you know what you're doing. Do you have any tips for teaching or learning physical musical concepts like embouchure and vibrato? Because those tend to be, uh, for me anyway, the more challenging um, concepts to teach. Well, um, I don't like to, I don't like to have only one embouchure. I usually use about five of them in the same half hour or less. Um, I like to make a stable reed that grows a sharp C so that with reasonable air support it will play most of the oboe range in tune and voiced. And then extremes would require only a little bit of extra effort like if you're going to go very low or very high, or tongue a bit too fast, um, that can be adjusted for the moment. Um, but as much as I tried to, I could not come up with one embouchure that could do everything. Like middle, high, and low, that can tongue fast, that can attack very subtly, and that can do various degrees of vibrato. Uh, and 
have to play ugly and beautiful at the same time. Sometimes we have to play ugly. Sometimes we represent the ugly in a beautiful way, such as when we play Schumann, or we represent ugly the ugly way when we play a barrio sequenza or something. And we try to make that not beautiful, we make it appropriately ugly. Um, or redefine what ugly is in the first place. Maybe it isn't ugly at all. Uh, so my my suggestion would be to to keep an open mind and not get ourselves glued into one way of playing, because the world of music is so diverse. If we are playing only in one way, it's just a matter of time before we're going to conclude that we're doing the wrong thing. Mm. So we have to have a good airstream and bass are playing on the airstream, not on embouchure. Every muscle uh, north of your lungs should be available to various degrees of tension and relaxation for us to make music. Uh, and we know that if we overuse certain muscles, they get tired. Actually, all of them do eventually. Uh, so, of course, an embouchure has to be forced. Is not is is of no use. So reeds play a great part on that on how the embouchure works. Stable, reasonably easy to blow and speak. As for vibrato, um, I am open to all sorts of uh, options. Mostly, I do it from the diaphragm. I think it's the most beautiful. It's the hardest one to make, but it's the most beautiful, more most reliable. And that allows me to change speeds. I can sometimes play without vibrato at all. I like to use a throat vibrato as long as it doesn't kick too much in the throat and we hear that kicking sound. Mm -hmm. And uh, occasionally lift vibrato only when the composer asks for, or in certain cases when I'm circular breathing, and I don't want to stop the vibrato during the circular breathing, so I would sneak in one or two waves of left vibrato into the sound. I know this sounds weird and dangerous, and okay, it is. <laughs> and it has to be done carefully in good taste like anything else. I had never thought of that before, but that that would work. Yeah, like Strauss Concerto. I, I cannot stop vibrato because it's 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 such a such an intense piece. And I often have to circular breathe, but I don't want there to be a dead spot when I'm circular breathing. And I don't always circular breathe during a fast passage. So if I happen to circular breathe during a long note there, I'm just going to you know, do a little wah-wah very carefully <laughs> so that um, the, the, the same uh, intensity of the note continues. So ideally, how do you structure your practice sessions? Well, I, to tell you the truth, right now I, I can't. Right now I really cannot practice. I practice very little. I practice two, three hours a week. And I warm up before rehearsals. And I use the orchestra rehearsals as practice time because I am on a time limit. I should be playing no more than an hour a day with my focal dystonia. And I'm doing about five or six hours. So I am, uh, but let me answer to you as, what I teach and what I used to do, um, what we do 
It's about music. Not about playing the oboe. It's about expressing our humanity through this instrument. And that's where we should concentrate our practicing. So put the oboe away, put the reeds away, sit under a tree with the music and read it like a book. Allow the music to come to you. We can imagine perfection in our minds. The low B flat is always going to come out, no matter what dynamic. We can play it as fast as you can think of. We can tongue all the fast, all the notes. Are, you never have to breathe. And you know, we can imagine perfection. Get used to that. Fall in love with it. Make notes in the part of, oh yeah, this is when he goes, ooh. And then, and then, you know, fall in love with that means memorize how wonderful music is. And then we go and play, and we realize that we sound horrible. We realize how far away we are from perfection. And that is why we practice. We practice to get our current playing to the level of that we can imagine. And woe is to the one that quits in the middle. That thing would be for us to, at some point, well, I think it's good enough, or I think I forgot what... uh, uh, exactly what is it that I dreamt about. But we can't, we can't forget that dream because that's us. That's our, our, our philosophy. Our life is in there. So we, we should continue working and getting down to every note, every little motif and phrase and getting to be exactly how we dreamt. Even if all we're going to practice today is one phrase for three hours. Once we do that, the next one is only going to take two hours, and so on. We, we learn how to learn. Uh, and then we realize, of course, that in order to do this, we need technique. We need to know how to blow. We need to sustain a sound. So I do put my students through boot camp of uh, you know, long tones and scales and furlings and barrets. So we can fine-tune our technique. But for a professional player, this should be something that uh, is more towards the warm-up uh, than actual study. For me, for practicing means getting music done. Uh, warming up is when we do five minutes of long tones to get our air going, and then we do some slow scales to make sure our fingers are going where they should be. And, and so on. Um, but I, when I practice, I get the music out and I try to impose on the reed, impose on the oboe, my will. That's the way it's going to be. What advice do you have for a young oboist who aspires to have a career like yours? When I was younger... I was listening to those Heinz Holliger records in disbelief and also feeling inadequate. How can I ever reach this level? And then it dawned on me in a very naive way that Heinz Holliger has a brain and ten fingers. And so that if he can do it, I ought to be able to do it. And I'll, I'll find a way but I can't do it. It's sort of learning by osmosis. I would tell a young player to listen to the best recordings he or she can find 
and listen to them often. And try to be critical. They are all human beings. They are not gods of the oboe. Listen very critically, think, I like this, I'm not so great about that, I, that's okay, I really love that other one. And in every oboe player, you should find something that's admirable. And, and you listen to it so many times, <clears throat> they become second nature to you. It creates a standard which you're going to grow to go into. And when we go practice and we sound bad or our read is terrible, we immediately get a reaction from it. Uh, either disappointment or anger or sadness or impulse. And we, we should then rely on that reaction to make us go in the, in the direction of this playing that we admire and that we construct inside of us. My, that would be my advice to a younger person wanting to do uh, anything uh, remotely um, similar to, to what I've had the privilege to live. Um, there is nothing that separates a student from a top player other than experience and knowledge. And those we're not born with. Nobody is. We all have access to experience and knowledge. We just have to go get it. It is out there. And um, so, good luck. Practice hard. Alex, thank you so much for being our guest on WFISH. This was a really enlightening and heartening conversation and we're just so grateful that you agreed to share your thoughts with us. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Anytime. So that was an awesome interview with Alex Klein. I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as we did. The article that we referenced several times throughout that interview from the Chicago Tribune, um, there's a lengthy article and then also a video. We will put that in the description of the article. So make sure you read that as a supplement to this interview. I think it'll really kind of flesh out um, the whole experience and the type of things that he was talking about. For next episode, we have Sue Heineman, who is principal bassoon of the National Symphony Orchestra. So excited to talk to her. Yes, yeah, so mark your calendars for that. And in the meantime... You can find us on all of the social media. You can email us at doublereaddish at gmail.com. We always love hearing from you, and we really appreciate those of you who sent in questions to ask Alex Klein. And thank you to Corey for being with us for our dish. Yay, Corey. Thank you for having me.